Morning again, church. Advent simply means coming. And this year I asked our pastoral resident, Alex Louisus, to draft our Advent series. And he has us focusing this Advent on, for the first two weeks, on the second coming of Christ and what will be true. And then the second two weeks on what, will be, what life will be like now under the king for those who reject him as king and those who accept him as king. And then on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, we'll focus on the first advent or the first coming of Christ. So two weeks in the, in the future, two weeks in the present, and then two weeks in the past. So this morning, we are looking past the return of King Jesus, which Juan David helped us to see last week. We're looking past the return of Christ. We're looking past the defeat of all of Christ's enemies. And we're looking at the eternal kingdom, the last thing that God has planned for us. We'll ask the question this morning, what will life be like in that eternal kingdom? And then secondly, who will be there? So let me pray, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word. In Revelation chapter 21, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it's the last book in the Bible. So if you just open up from the back and turn a few pages, you'll come to Revelation chapter 21. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, our hearts are filled with expectation. That's where we want them to be every time we open your word. Alone in our homes, or together in this place. And so we ask that your word would not return void. We ask that you would speak with power to us, your children, and to those of us here who haven't yet put our trust in Christ. We ask that you would turn our hearts toward him this morning that we would see what you, Spirit, Father, and Son have planned for your people for eternity future, an everlasting kingdom that will not diminish or fade. And we pray that that would deliver hope now and perspective now. And we pray these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Here's the image that I want us to latch onto this morning. It's the difference between the present shadow or the future substance. Shadow versus substance. Are we hungry for the present foretaste or the future fullness? What do our hearts long for? The movie's preview trailer or the film itself? What do our hearts long for? Shadow or substance? The present shadow, according to God's word, is fading, fleeting, and momentary. You can hardly grasp it before it's gone. The future substance, on the other hand, is lasting, it's sturdy, and it's magnificent. It's the point that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't focus your treasures on this earth that can be lost. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. Jesus says that our hearts follow our treasure. Wherever we put our treasure, there our hearts will be aligned. Our heart is the core part of who we are. Our heart chooses, imagines, desires. And if we treasure, and if we long, and if we cherish the future substance of heaven, then our hearts will be there. We'll long to store up rewards there. We'll be willing to lose now if it will mean a harvest there. But if we treasure this present shadow of a life, then our hearts will be here. We'll long for the world's rewards now and we'll long to avoid the world's pain. So the key decision for every person to make is to see that this world is a fleeting shadow that's preparing us for the eternal substance that is to come. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present fleeting momentary shadow, are not worth comparing with the glory, the everlasting, magnificent, sturdy substance that is to be revealed to us. And this is why spending time thinking about the second coming and the future kingdom of Christ is immensely practical. It teaches us to store up treasures in heaven. It teaches us to long for what is to come and our hearts will follow our treasure. Here's the main idea this morning. Long for Jesus's eternal kingdom where God will dwell forever with the church. Long for Jesus's eternal kingdom where the church will live with God forever. Two questions to ask this morning. What will this eternal kingdom be like? And the second question that we'll answer more briefly is who will be there? Verses one through five, the king's eternal kingdom. These five verses answer the first question. What will life be like in Jesus's eternal kingdom? When all our enemies are defeated, when sin and death are finally judged, when Jesus is experiencing his full reign in all the universe, what will life be like? Here's the grid that frames these first five verses. The former things have passed away. Behold, look, worship, new things I'm making all things new. The former things have passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new. That's the grid. The shadow, the foretaste, it will have departed by then. It will have passed away. And Jesus says to the apostle John in this vision, behold, I'm making all things brand new. The first thing that we'll see is that the groaning of creation will pass away. The groaning of creation will pass away. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 21. Now remember, this is John seeing a vision that Jesus gives him, a vision in the future. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, had departed, and the sea was no more. The first heaven and the first earth, the thing that we live in and look at, it's passed away at this point. Kids, how many of you love to watch Dude Perfect? Me too. There was a, an episode recently where one of the twins got to go to space. He got in a rocket with five or six other people, shot up to space, and for five minutes they undid their seatbelts and they floated around in the rocket and they looked out windows. And I was struck, I was surprised at how struck my heart was by their reactions to looking at the magnificence of space. There was something incredible 
something that they had never experienced before. And even watching through a video, I could feel a bit of what they were feeling. Well, that magnificence will pass away. And so will the earth, the splendor of mountains, the immensity of oceans, the complexity of plant life. It will depart. It will pass away. Jesus created it. He covers it with a flood. He refashions it, but it will pass away. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the apostle Peter writes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, if we stop and ask the question, we might think, this is bad news. We kind of like where we live. And we're told here that everything that we see and everything that we can't see but we know exists out there, it will pass away and depart. What a waste. Now, whenever we're looking at this kind of literature, literature where John is looking into the future and he's laboring to explain to us what he's seeing, we want to leave in a little mystery. We don't know exactly how God will do this, how he'll make everything depart and make everything new. We don't know exactly to what degree he might make use of what's here to make what's new, whether he will completely start over or whether he will, he will use some of what's here. But ultimately, according to God's perspective, this is good news. It's good news because even the creation itself is longing to be redeemed. Creation itself knows that it must be restored. Here's Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When the first heavens and the first earth pass away, the groaning painful disorder in creation will fade. No more devastating natural disasters. No more hurricanes, no more tornadoes, no more tsunamis, no more forest fires, no more droughts. No more destructive pandemics or plagues or diseases. No more dangerous wild animals. Maybe no more snakes will be in the new heavens and the new earth. All the groaning dangerous disorder that makes up creation will pass away. Even the sea will be no more. Now for some of you that might not be good news. For the Israelites, a non-seafaring people, the sea and the ocean was a sign of mystery. It unsettled them. It was filled with complexities they could not understand. But what then? Behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. The curse that is spread all throughout the universe is finally reversed. And God will make a new heaven and a new earth where he will dwell with his people. He's creating a home where the king and the king's people will live together for all eternity. A home where restorative joy and meaningful work and exquisite beauty and gratifying worship can finally take place. A home that will be steadfast and everlasting, sturdy and perfect, magnificent and awesome. 
Just think about the beauty of creation minus the thorns. The magnificent of God's creation minus everything about it that labors under the weight of our sin. It will be gone. And all that will be left is the magnificence of God's new heaven and new earth. Oh, that we might store up for ourselves treasures there where moth and rust will not destroy and where thieves will not break in and steal. The first thing we notice is that the groaning of creation will pass away. But there's more. In verse 2, we read that the sinning of the church will pass away. The sinning, the rebellion of the church will pass away. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Descending into the new heavens and the new earth is a city. Now remember, John is looking into the future. He's seeing a vision. This is filled with apocalyptic literature. And he labors to describe to us in language that we can understand what he's seeing. Now in preaching meeting this week, we meet every, every week at 3 o'clock on Wednesdays. And we had a discussion about whether or not this is a physical city or a metaphor for God's people. God's people who are often referred to as the new Jerusalem or as a new people, the city of God. Now, in the end, I think that this is a physical city filled with the church. A physical city filled with the church. And I think that John is using purposefully overlapping imagery. He'll get to the physical aspects of this city beginning in verse 9, and he'll tell us what the city will look like. But his purposes in verse 8 are on the people who will live in the city. And cities are not about buildings and roads primarily. Cities are about the people who live there. And this particular city is characterized by holiness and newness. It's coming down from heaven, signaling victory. Jesus has defeated every one of the enemies of the church and descends onto the earth in a new city with his people. And both are prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, totally without spot or wrinkle. Hearts and bodies sprinkled clean and purified by Christ's blood, a church delivered from the domain of darkness, a church where Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame, triumphing over them, a church that's experienced the canceling of her debt that stood against her. And Jesus presents the church holy and blameless and above reproach. You may not feel like that this morning. We may not feel like that this morning. But there will come a day when we descend from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Now imagine the relational dynamics in that city when sin is only a distant memory, if that. No gossip, no malice, no impatient speech, no betrayal, no murder or hatred, no sexual sin, no lust, no despair, no hopelessness, no loneliness, no fear, no violence, no abuse, no manipulation, no lying, no adultery, no idolatry, no selfishness. It's none of it is there. Sin is a thing of the past. And imagine the relational dynamics in that city when sin is no longer a part of our relationships. Just a righteous bride without a, a hint of sin, total 
complete, selfless love for God and for each other, ringing with truth, love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, encouragement. It's not just the absence of sin, but the presence of righteousness that makes this bride shine with the righteousness of Christ, filled with joyful welcomes and eager greetings and deep relationships and fulfilling work and lasting worship. It's coming. One day, the church will descend out of heaven from God in the new city, prepared and adorned for an everlasting wedding feast, doing righteousness and loving righteousness because of what our Christ has accomplished. Because of Christ, victory over sin will be ours. Victory over Satan will be ours. Victory over all those who reject Christ will be ours. We will be a bride. And so Paul uses this metaphor in Hebrews in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The sinning of the church will pass away. Behold, Jesus is making all things new, and his righteous bride, the church, will reign with him in victory. Brothers and sisters, that's our future if we are in Christ. Regardless of how we feel in the moment, regardless of how sin has entangled itself in our hearts and our lives and our relationships, this will soon be true of us. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done before us. And for that reason, even now, Isaiah 62.5 is true of every one of you who find yourselves united to Christ. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bride rejoices, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The sinning of the church will pass away. There's something else that will pass away. And that's the separation that we have with God. The dwelling place of God will change. Look at verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The dwelling of the church will change. Our relationship with where God lives will change. The alienation of the church will pass away. Spiritually, we have experienced the united nature with Christ. But one day soon, the physical presence of Christ and God will be made manifest and we will see him. We will live with him. No more estrangement physically. No more distance physically. No more seeing with eyes of faith. No more anticipation and waiting. Instead, a loud voice from the throne, God the Father, announces that God will now dwell with his people. Behold the new thing. In Matthew 1.23, we read, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what was in shadowy form in the first coming we will experience the substance of in the second coming. Here's Ezekiel 37. 
I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And will, will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Behold the new thing that God will do, unhindered fellowship with God forever. He will take up residence with his people forever. He will live in our midst. We will see him and we will know him. The throne of God and the throne of the Lamb will be in our midst. He will shelter us with his presence. He will be our shepherd and will guide us to springs of living water. We will serve him with gladness day and night and the glory of the Lord will give us light. The lamb of God will be the lamp and we will see his face and we will worship and we will reign with him forever and ever. The temporary dwelling of the church will change. Here's the last thing we see. Number four, the weeping of the church will pass away. Look at verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Oh, how I long for our pain to pass away. The fatherly, Father tenderly promises that our tears will be wiped away from our eyes. Who wipes them away? Is it the disciples? Is it the elders in heaven? Is it an angel wrapped in light? Is it some heavenly creature that's been created for such a purpose? No, the king himself will do it. Jesus will wipe tears away from our eyes and death shall be no more. Death, that wicked, uninvited villain, will pass away and will be no more. Can you even imagine our lives without our hulking fears of death? No more threatening, no more menacing, death will pass away. And so will mourning for what's left for us to mourn. Crying will pass away too. What's left to generate tears? Pain will pass away for our bodies will be free of the degrading, degenerating, disorienting presence of disease. It's gone. Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. It's done. Instead, we rejoice in the truth of Psalm 116 verse 9. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The weeping of the church will pass away. Now the question that's answered in verse 5 is how do we know that these things will actually take place? Jesus has shown John a vision of things that will pass away, things that Jesus is making new, but how do we know these things will take place? Look at verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, 
Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Because God keeps his promises, we know that these things will be true. God is not like man that he should lie. God is not double-tongued. God is not too weak to fulfill his promises. God said it will happen, and it will happen. His words are trustworthy, and his words are true. So when we arrive at the last day, when we enter into finally Christ's eternal kingdom, the groaning of creation will pass away. The sinning of the church will cease. The temporary dwelling of the church will change. And the weeping of the church will come to an end. Those things will be true because God has said that they will occur. The former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things new. But we have a briefer question to answer, and that is who will experience it? Who will be there? In verses 6 through 8, we read of the king's eternal people, who they are and who they are not. The most fundamental question that we each have to answer is, what will you do with King Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Jesus preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Matthew 4, 17. Jesus proclaimed, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, Luke 5, 32. Jesus promised in Matthew 25 that there will be a day when all of humanity will be gathered before him and separated into two groups, like sheep are separated from goats, one who will receive eternal life and one who will be banished to an eternal fire. This is what Jesus has said about himself and about his ministry. And the question is, what will we do with him? What will we do with what he said Jesus summons us to respond to who he is and to what he's come to do. And to answer Jesus' summons will determine whether or not we are counted among those who enter into his eternal kingdom or not. And so in verse 6, we read of the thirsty. Look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I am the creator and I am the consummator. He created the world and he will recreate the world. He began the work of redemption and he will finish the work of redemption. And he will open wide this spring of water so that all who are thirsty may drink deeply. And he won't charge for it. The water is free, but you must thirst if you're going to drink. You must open your mouth and you must drink deeply. But to long to drink of Christ's mercy requires you to feel thirst. That's what Jesus meant when he said he came not to save the righteous, but sinners. He came to save those who understood their need for mercy, that they needed to drink of Christ's mercy. Know your need for grace, that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that there is none who is righteous, not even one. Be aware of your sin. Be sensitive to your need for God's mercy and then drink deeply. And then look at verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage. God will be our God and we will be his children. But what does it mean to conquer? In Revelation 12, verse 11, John writes, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have loved not their lives even unto death. We're talking about thirst and we're talking about endurance. These are not works that the church performs. These are byproducts of a church that have been made righteous through Christ. These are the byproducts of faith. These are the evidence of faith. In Hebrews chapter 10 that we looked at a few weeks ago, we read, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So how do you remain thirsty and enduring? If it's the thirsty and those who conquer, those who endure, that enter into Christ's eternal kingdom, then how do you remain thirsty and how do you endure? The answer to that question is to shelter near the cross. Stay underneath the shadow of the cross all the time, every day. Be reminded that it was your sin that nailed Christ to that wooden beam. Be aware of your cross. Be aware of his cross and be humbled by your own sin. Stay humble. Stay thirsty, knowing that on that cross, Christ died in your place. When you shelter near the cross, when you stay emotionally, when you keep your thoughts near the cross, you are at the same time humbled by your own sin and glad over God's mercy. Because it was on that cross that he did for you what you could not do for yourself. So stay thirsty and keep enduring by sheltering near the cross, knowing that this present shadow will soon be consumed by an eternal substance. But there's a second group of people mentioned in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, it's not as if that list doesn't also describe God's people. That's not the point. The constant refrain in the New Testament is, such were some of you. That's the refrain of the church. We understand that there is no difference between us and our non-Christian neighbors whom we love than Christ's grace. Such were some of you. These things characterized us. And it's not as if we only struggled with these things in the past. It is true that as his people, there's a degree to which we struggle with these things in an ongoing way. So what's the difference? We're thirsty, we're enduring. The Holy Spirit has given us new hearts. He's strengthening us through his word, giving us his people. And so these sins no longer pollute our lives in the same way. Instead, the gospel is gaining a steady victory in our lives, sometimes rapid and sometimes plodding, but the gospel is on the advance in our lives. And when we look back over months and years, we see evidence of the gospel's advance in our lives. But to those who rebel against Christ, to those who reject his grace, who rebel against his expectations, who reject his word, who rebel against his standards, who reject his authority, that person will not enter the kingdom of God. And here's the sharpest edge of the passage this morning. 
Jesus shows John that their inheritance will be a righteous judgment. That their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and with sulfur. The same lake where Jesus took death and Satan and threw them. This is, John says, the second death. An everlasting, final, painful separation that Jesus described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. The most important question that all of us have to answer is, what do we do with Jesus? When he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near, what do we do with what he said? But packaged inside this sharp edge is an opportunity to turn. For example, Jesus says in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, come and drink. All you are thirsty, come. Knowing your sin and how your sin has separated you from God, come thirsty and drink for free. Paul repeats this in Acts 17, where he says that God now commands all people everywhere to repent. There is no one within the sound of my voice who is outside of Christ's authority. And Jesus says to all of us, repent, all people everywhere. Why should we repent? Acts 17, verse 31, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The one who has risen from the dead will be the one to judge all of humanity on a future day that God has appointed. And there is time now for you to drink deeply of the free water that Jesus gives you, but you must turn. And I implore you this morning, turn to Christ now while there's still time. We don't know when this future day will be, but we do know that today is the day of salvation for all who will turn to Christ and trust him. Long for Jesus' eternal kingdom where the church will live with God forever. Your heart follows your treasure. If your objective is to win reward and avoid trouble in this present shadow of a life, then your heart will be caught up in the pursuits and pains of this world. Our hearts follow our treasure. But if your objective is to win eternal reward and to avoid trouble in the next life, then your heart will be caught up in the pursuits of heaven and your heart will bear the pain and the cost of life in this world following after Christ. That's what will happen if your heart is following the treasure of eternity. In short, let the future substance of Jesus' everlasting kingdom mean more to you than the fleeting pleasures and pain of this life. Doing so will help you to endure the pain of this world, waiting for relief in the next and doing so will help us to decline the pleasures of this world, storing up for ourselves treasure in the next life instead. Look, behold, long for the eternal kingdom that's coming. 
I want to end by reading to you a portion of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we long for your eternal kingdom to come. And we want to live in expectation of that kingdom. And we know that in this life, we already experience a foretaste of that kingdom. As we live together in righteousness and truth, as we worship you, we experience a taste of what we will experience then. So fill our hearts with expectation, not only of what will be, but what is now because you came and you sent your spirit to strengthen us by your word and to cause us to endure until that moment when we see you face to face. We praise you this morning. Amen.